Please uh, join me and take out your Bibles and turn to Acts chapter 17. As we go to God's Word, let's go to Him in prayer. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for Your Spirit. We thank You that we have a, a map and we have a compass. But more than that, Father, we thank you that we have a guide. And as we sing sometimes, we may not know the way to go, but oh, we know our guide. And his love can never fail. So, Father, as we spend time in your word, would you make Jesus known to your gathered people? For we pray in his name. Amen. I want us to begin with a subject that's dealt with most often in one of two ways. Either through denial, ignore it, and maybe it'll go away, or through trivia. You know, it's really not that important. It's not that big a deal. Well, what's the subject? Well, I've already probably given too many hints. It's death. It's everywhere around us. It's affecting all of us in one way or another. Again, yesterday's presbytery meeting, it was joyful. It was was wonderful. And yet, there was a theme of death and suffering that was weaved throughout the time together. Now, Scripture has much to say, of course, about death. But I want us to hear just two words about death as we begin. First, it's not trivial. For the wages of sin is death. For the wages of sin is death. And it can't be denied. And just as it is appointed for man to die once. And after that comes judgment. That first word was from Paul's letter to the Romans and that second word was from the author of the letter to the Hebrews. The wages of sin is death and just as it is appointed for man to die once and after that comes judgment. Now Christians, we are called to be people of truth and people of reality, not people of lies and not people of fantasy. When it comes to the subject, the topic of death, along with every other matter known to man. We are to be people of truth and reality, not lies and fantasy. And when it comes to death, of course, there are a lot of lies out there. And there's a lot of fantasy. Paul's speech in Athens is a good example of when truth and reality confronts lives and fantasy. See, Paul will answer a question that he has asked, and he will respond to a request that is made. Um, Recall what Paul is doing in Athens. Look with me at chapter 17, verse 18. What's Paul doing? 
At the end of 18, he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. He's preaching Jesus and the resurrection. That's a a summary statement of everything he's doing in the synagogue, in the marketplace, and of course what he'll do before the Areopagus as we will see. A question. What is it? Look at verse 19. May we know what this new teaching is. Paul is asked a question, and he's given a request in verse 20. We wish to know, therefore, what these things, that is, what these strange things mean. They're wanting to know what is it and what does it mean. Paul will not argue with the philosophers. Rather, he will make an argument. He'll make a case. Will he succeed? Will he be persuasive? Now, before we examine his argument, let's go back and review his attitude, because his attitude informs and shapes his argument. Why he says what he says and how he says what he says is important. Remember Paul's counsel to the Ephesians? Speaking the truth in love. Speaking the truth in love. How you proclaim the truth matters. Paul is going to make an argument, and why he does it and how he does it matters. Remember, he's, there's an attitude of rage, an, a matter, an attitude of internal rage. Why? Because Paul is provoked by all the rampant idolatry in the city. He looks around and sees objects of worship. He has an attitude, an understandable attitude of rage, but he also has an attitude of restraint. And that that internal rage did not result in a sinful action on his part. He didn't fight. He didn't flee. He was even willing to take criticism. To be called a babbler. Someone who just goes around picking up seeds like birds. He also had an attitude of respect. Why? Because he knew that all people are made in the image of God. All people are rebels against God's authority. All people are slaves to sin unless they have been rescued by Jesus as Paul himself had been rescued. Remember, even when Paul was on his way on the road to Damascus, ostensibly to do the Lord's will, to maintain the purity of the Jewish religion. Nonetheless, he was a slave to sin. He didn't know it, but he had to get rescued. And he is going to dedicate his life to being used by God to rescue people who are rebels and slaves. Now, before we begin, I want us to note, and we would have to go to Corinthians in particular, Paul is not worried about being a good speaker. You know, the Greeks liked their ears tickled. Pagans liked to evaluate speakers on how was their outline? Uh, did they hit their points? Were they logical? Were they, were they polished? Paul doesn't care. He's not worried about being a good speaker. What he is concerned about is he's wanting to be faithful to the message, faithful to the gospel of Jesus Christ. I, I think that's got to be an encouragement to us. How many of us hesitate? Oh, I've got to say it right. And does that cause us to not say anything at all? 
You know the stories of people's conversions. God uses the plain, simple reading of Scripture to convert people. He uses people that the world would, would, would think nothing of to proclaim the gospel and see people come to faith in Christ. Greeks are impressed by the eloquence of speech. Paul is impressed by the glory and love of Jesus Christ. We need to keep that in mind as we individually and as we as a church share Christ. It's the time of the Roman Empire, but Athens is still the center of intellectual and philosophical speculation in, ancient, in the ancient world. And we're going to unpack Paul's speech before the Areopagus, both a place and a council, by examining, first, the connection he makes, second, the content he proclaims, and third, the call he issues. The connection he makes, the content he proclaims, and the call he issues. Let's take a look at the connection he makes with his audience. Join with me as I read verses 22 and 23. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. Well, here's Paul before this gathering of the cultural, kind of the religious, the political, kind of old guard in Athens. Intimidating to be sure, but, but Paul's got his eyes on Jesus as it were. And he has to find a point of contact. He's going to find common ground. He's got to start somewhere. And there's a point of contact with these Gentiles, with these pagans. You see, when he goes to the synagogue, his point of contact is the scriptures, right? But when he's out here amongst pagans, amongst Gentiles, he's not going to go to the scriptures. Does that mean Paul doesn't think the scriptures are important? Of course not. But he, he doesn't start with the word. He starts with the world because there is an inescapability of religion. I see that in every way you are very religious. Now, that's ambiguous. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? It, it's, it's purposefully ambiguous. It's a neutral thing. It's just a fact. They are very religious because think about the grace and peace postcard. To be human is to worship. Who or what are you worshiping? You cannot but worship. Human beings were created to worship. Human beings were created to find satisfaction and security and significance somewhere, somehow, in someone or something. Martin Luther says it really well in his large catechism. Whatever your heart clings to and confides in, that is your God. Paul, in walking around Athens, looking at this object of worship and that object of worship and seeing this altar to an unknown God. Talk about covering your bases, right? You know the ancient world, a God for this, a God for that. Let's cover it with an altar to the unknown God. I mean, that beats 
having your pantheon filled with all kinds of gods, doesn't it? Saves on maintenance. One altar to the unknown God. And Paul sees that as, hey, that's where I can connect. That's where I can connect. So, so how are you doing when it comes to making connections with people? Not, not necessarily people here where you can connect on the word, but are you making connections with people out in the world? Because as we, as we heard in the sermon yesterday from John 13 about the glory of Christ and the love God's people have for one another and how that is the supreme witness into the world. What's our connection with the world? Your neighbors, your co-workers, your family. What are you, how, how are you connecting? Now, Paul, interestingly, is following Jesus, isn't he? Look, think about the parables. Jesus says, look at the what? Look at the birds of the air. He's making a connection. Jesus is saying, I'm looking at the birds of the air. You're looking at the birds of the air. Let me tell you about how your father cares for you way more than these birds. Paul is saying, I'm looking at an, unknown, an altar to an unknown God. You're looking at an altar to an unknown God. And we're going to make a connection. Because he's going to say that the infinite God is, has come to finite people. That God has descended to man. You see, Athens is just like every other place in the world. It's how do you get to the God's and how do you make yourself right with the gods? How do you appease the gods? And Christianity, since it's not man-made, but it's God-made, it's, it's the Lord coming. It's the Lord descending. Our whole lives are built on climbing the ladder. And Christianity is the Lord climbing down the ladder to meet his people so that we can be, as it were, carried up to where he is. And so Paul says, what therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. So Paul is going to make known the unknown God. So let's move into the content that he proclaims to his audience. The content he proclaims. And I'm going to go ahead and read Kind of the bulk of this, 24 through 29 now, and then we'll go through it a bit. This is Paul's proclamation. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. 
Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. That's his content. He, he's, he's facing an, an, an audience that's attentive, but an audience that will be resisted. An audience who knows of God, but doesn't know God. Why? Because as Paul says in Romans 1, they suppress the knowledge of God in unrighteousness. Now remember, there are two main schools of philosophy here at this time. There are competing worldviews of trying to make sense out of life and of death because that's what's happening. We, we want to know how to live and we want to know how to face death because... Death is a reality that we can't escape. They're trying to figure it out, and, and it's really a simple description, but Epicureanism emphasizes chance and escape and the enjoyment of pleasure, whereas Stoicism emphasizes fatalism, submission, and the endurance of pain. So to make it real simple, you've got these two competing philosophies, then and how about now? Pleasure, pain. Enjoy pleasure, endure pain. There's a little bit of Epicureanism and a little bit of Stoicism still around, isn't there? And Paul will find areas of agreement in order to exploit them for the sake of the gospel. He'll build a bridge, yet he'll also confront. He'll demonstrate where his view and their views concur and where they contradict. You see, Paul is creative and he's subsur subsur subversive in his engagement. And what's going to happen now is Paul is writing a confession of faith. Paul is writing a creed. Hey, Paul, who is God? Or tell us about God. What God is what, he says. And this is who Paul says. God is the creator of the universe. Verse 24, God is the personal creator. And that would have gone immediately up against the Stoics who had a pantheon, who were pantheist, many gods, not a personal creator, but an abstract uh, collection of gods. There's the work of creation, but it doesn't stop there because not only is God the creator, but God is the sustainer of life. And we see that in verse 25. He gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. It's God's work of providence. I mean, here's the Westminster Shorter Catechism unfolding. God is the creator, his works of creation, and he's the sustainer, his works of, of providence. And, and the February table talk is coming in right on time. But then we move on to verse 26 through the first half of 28, and God is the ruler of the nations. He's the creator. He's the sustainer. He's the ruler of nations. God is the designer. He rules that which he designs. And that would go up against Epicurean belief in chance. Everything's chance. Paul says, no, no, no. God, God creates. He sustains. He, he rules. And he goes on to quote two pagan poets in order to pour Christian truth into what they already affirm. But before he does that, 
Look back with me at um, verse 27. God is created, God is sustained, and, and God rules. Why? That they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way toward him and find him. A, a, a picture of groping in the dark. A picture of, of, yeah, there's a God, but I'm not sure. And then Paul ends up saying, yet he is actually not far from each one of us. He's already here in his omniscience, in his omnipresence. Notice beginning in the end of verse 28. For we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring. So Paul is saying he's the creator, he's the sustainer, he's the ruler, and he's the father of human beings. And even though Paul is not quoting scripture, you and I can go to so many places and, and see where Eve is the mother of all mankind. And we, we see that God doesn't live in temples uh, constructed by man. I mean, Solomon recognized that. Uh, we see it in Isaiah. He's not using scripture proofs because he's using just truth to, to build bridges and to confront. And what's interesting when he says, in quotes, for we are indeed his offspring, and then goes on to say, being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being or the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of men. He's calling, up, calling out their, their contradiction. He's calling up their, their complete um, canceling out of each other. If we are the offspring of God's, Paul says, then what's with all the idols you've made? Can the child make the parent? So Paul is deconstructing their view, using their own words, which is a great apologetic um, method to, to help people see that their own views cannot hold up under scrutiny. Paul is saying God has revealed himself as the creator, the sustainer, the ruler, and the father. You see, at every point, the Athenians, the philosophers, they have minimized God and they have maximized themselves. Is there really any difference between Athens, first century, and greater Cincinnati, 21st century? Minimizing God and maximizing ourselves? For all their supposed knowledge... Remember, they're always looking for new things to learn. For all their supposed knowledge, they're ignorant. For all the logic, they are illogical. After Paul gives these quotations, he takes what they've said and what they're doing and has shown them that they both can't be true. They're contradictory. He gently but clearly deconstructs their view. Paul is, is using the very things that they have affirmed as true, but he turns it to show that there's a tension because they are attempting to live in God's world apart from submission to him. What a picture. Attempting to live in God's world. Why? God is the maker, the creator. He's the sustainer, the ruler, the, the father of all. And they're attempting to live apart from submission to him. It's what Paul would say in Romans about the potter and the clay, the clay yelling back 
at the, um, at the potter. But Paul is not going to leave them with just information. He's looking for transformation, for change. Because he knows that the, the gospel is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. And so after, after he, he makes a connection and after he proclaims this content, he, he, he issues a call. He issues a call. Look with me now at verse 30 and 31. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. The time for ignorance is over. The time, Paul says, to believe, to know, is now. Why? Because judgment is coming. You see, Paul, even though it doesn't look like it at first, I think we can see that he's bringing in the gospel. He's not interested in bringing in some general theological statement. No, he's concerned only to bring in the specific truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You see, he's comparing two times, past ignorance, the former times of ignorance are now being contrasted with the now. The old times of ignorance are over. God's patience to overlook has ended. And Paul can even say that about his own life. Why did he do certain things? He was ignorant. He was ignorant. I mean, it takes a secure man, doesn't it, to admit you're ignorant? And Paul was able to do that. Why? Because he was secure in Christ. He could look back at his old life and know that that time for ignorance is over. The time to believe is now. Now, when Paul brings out this statement, now he commands all people everywhere to repent, it's an echo of Peter, isn't it? Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost. Brothers, what shall we do? Was the response to Peter's sermon about Jesus. And what did Peter say? Repent and be baptized. Now, it struck me as I was thinking about repentance. That's the first word from Peter's sermon. But you know what? If you think about it, Jesus himself in Mark 1, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Here's Paul saying, it's time to repent. Here's Peter saying, this is what you need to do, repent. And Jesus himself, the kingdom of God is at hand. The time is now. Repent. And what's interesting is if you think about it, Paul being respectful, Paul building bridges but confronting, Paul saying we can agree on this but we've got to disagree on that, Paul is unfolding the kindness of God. That God is the creator. God sustains life. God rules. 
things aren't by chance. God, God is the Father. Who doesn't want to have a relationship with their Father? And Paul says it very clearly in Romans chapter 2. It's the kindness of God that leads to repentance. Think about that for a while. We sang about it, right? There's an everlasting kindness. Do you think the kindness of God lets us get away with things? Not if you understand it rightly. The kindness of God causes us to examine our lives and see where it doesn't reflect who God is and what he's called us to be. The kindness of God leads to repentance. And so Paul has spent some time declaring who this unknown God is. He, he's a kind God. Now, where's the gospel? Where's the good news of the gospel? Wait a minute. What is it about the resurrection that guarantees judgment? You see, Paul anchors the imperative, the statement of command. In other words, now he commands all people everywhere to repent. He anchors that to the indicative, a statement of fact of Christ's resurrection. And here, those of you that have worked through Ephesians with us or Romans with us, it's the logic of the gospel, the indicative and the imperative. And here it is, we see it. And I want you to look with me at verse 31 because something is happening between the two halves of verse 31. Because he, God, has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Who's Paul talking about? Jesus, of course. There is an implicit premise, though not stated, between the two halves of verse 31. And, and the hint of this implicit premise is this, from the dead. From the dead. Jesus has been raised from the dead. In other words, Paul is saying Jesus has already faced the judgment of God. You see, Paul is saying that the judgment that will befall everyone at the end of the age has already fallen on Christ at the beginning of the age. You see, people who have faith in Jesus get the blessing he deserved and earned And he gets, Jesus gets, the curse that we deserve because of our sin. There is a judgment coming at the end of time, which is already secured, Paul is saying, by the judgment in time around A.D. 33. Because Paul is going to say, before he's interrupted, I believe, he's going to say the unknown God is made known fully and finally in the person and work of Jesus of Nazareth. Because Jesus is the image of the invisible God and Jesus is the exact representation of his nature. But we need to conclude now with how Luke concludes his narrative account of Paul in Athens. How successful was Paul? You want to compare your ability to share Christ with Paul's ability? You see, 
In verses 32 through 34 is a conclusion, and we see that Paul was interrupted before he could finish. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom were Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. You see, there's always a response to the gospel. And here we see a response to the news of the resurrection, then and now. Some reject. They sneer. They mock. They scoff. Are you kidding me? Resurrection? It's not going to happen. We don't believe that. That's why we've got to live for today in pleasure or just endure the pain There's no hope beyond what we see. They reject, but some are curious. Some want to hear this again. And a few believe. Now, we don't see why they believe, but we know that the sovereign, mysterious work of God brings someone from death to life. A few believe, and it gives a name, and it says others with them. I always go back to this passage. It encourages me. You share Christ. Somebody rejects. You share Christ. Somebody wants to know more. And you share Christ. And amazingly, despite your, your weak efforts, God calls them to faith. At best, Paul is batting 333. What an encouragement to us. Now, for those few who believed then and there, and for those innumerable people who believe here and now, remember where we started. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Don't you love how one verse captures it all? Romans 3.23 And remember where we started in Hebrews. And just as it is appointed for man to die once and after that comes judgment. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time. Not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. I remember in my nap time of Navigator's Scripture memory, when I got to Hebrews 9.27, I got cold sweat. Everybody's going to die. Everybody's going to face judgment. That's a hard verse. It's a true verse. It's accurate. It's reality. But thank God that it doesn't end there. Because Jesus has already sacrificed himself and Jesus has risen from the dead and Jesus is going to return not to deal with sin but rather to fully and finally save those who are waiting for him. Our dear sister Pat has been waiting for Jesus to take her home. What are you waiting for? 
What am I waiting for? A successful ministry? Lots of people here? A fabulous career? Well-behaved children? Respect in the community? Fill in the blank. What are you waiting for? My friends, in many ways, who we are waiting for is already with us by His Spirit. What good news for us. Are you waiting to get everything right? Are you waiting for Jesus to return? To make everything right? Make everything new? You see, verse 31 at the end says, He has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. You know, it's a double-edged assurance. It's an assurance of judgment and it's an assurance of salvation. And we, those who trust in Jesus, survive the coming judgment. How? By taking refuge in Jesus Because the wrath of God has already fallen on Jesus. And yet, the grave could not hold him. You know, by God's grace through faith, many of us have this assurance. That judgment is coming, but salvation is coming as well in Christ. Do our friends know it? Do our neighbors know it? Do our coworkers know it? Are we going to be peddling lies and fantasy about this, that, or the other? Are we going to be speaking the truth in love? Are we going to be describing reality? You see, those who reject Jesus now will finally and justly be rejected by Jesus later. Now is the day of salvation, Paul tells the Corinthian church. You see, the death that's around us and the death that will find us unless Jesus returns is undeniable and it's not trivial. And yet we can take heart, we can take courage. Why? Because Jesus has overcome the world. My friends, take your, find your refuge in Jesus. He got the curse we deserve because of our sin. And we get the blessing of obedience. His obedience. We get blessed assurance. Jesus is mine. Amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this argument in Athens where Paul, your apostle, makes known the unknown God. Father, may you be pleased to use us individually, use us as a church to let folks around us that are worshiping this, that, and the other, may we present to them the God who has made himself known in Jesus.
For it's in his name we pray. Amen.